which is page uh, 811 in your pew Bible. If you want to turn there. Sat in the back row this morning, and it is like trying to swim upstream against all those kids that go running out, and uh, it is a delight. Um, yesterday, we had a funeral service for Roy Pullmutter and family that uh, everybody came really from out of town, and uh, one of the comments uh, that, that we heard was just how uh, loving our church family had been. Uh, they didn't quite have the same you know, verbiage that, that we would use, and so they asked us to thank the community. Um, for, for what it is, but we are a faith community Bible church, and uh, one of the other comments was just how many kids, uh, and, and how good it was to see kids, and, uh, and so just uh, praise God for what he's doing here, thank you for loving members, and uh, an encouragement to you that uh, all of us uh, we, that, that know Christ are a priesthood of believers, and that your ministry to others behind the scenes, uh, I was overwhelmed with yesterday on how many people uh, had reached out and cared for Roy in his time here. And uh, I am just thankful uh, to be able to uh, join you in throwing down our crowns uh, before our Savior and say, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And uh, thank you for joining with us in that. So we're here in Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing our series called, uh, Lord Teaches How to Pray. We've already uh, seen the Lord found it necessary to begin his teaching with some corrections, uh, warning us against certain dangers uh, in connection with prayer. Uh, the first correction that he wanted to make sure that we got, or his first warning, was that we don't want to pray like religious hypocrites that just pray to be heard, uh, pray to be seen. Use God's means, prayer, uh, God's means of communing with him, really uh, as a way just to look more holy in other people's eyes. And, and he warns us against that. He also warns us not to look at prayer uh, as an attempt to manipulate or to negotiate or to bargain with God uh, as the pagans do because they think that they're going to be heard for their many words. And so they were trying to basically uh, work God up to being favorable to them. And now we come to verses 9 through 13, and he gives us some positive instructions on actually how to pray. Uh, it's, a, it's a model of prayer. Uh, one way to think about it would be that this is a menu of prayer. So, so we have our menu out, and there's different prayer items, prayer categories, that should always be a part of our prayer life. So we can have a well-balanced diet in prayer. And uh, last week, we looked at just kind of one uh, item on that menu, and that was learning how to pray together as a community. He says, our Father, right? Forgive us uh, our debts. Uh, lead us not into temptation. We looked at how the church is not just an individual roster of players. We don't gather here on Sunday mornings and have a hundred of us have our personal devotions together. Uh, actually, there's something very different. We are a body. We are members. And so we come together. We pray for one another. We, we pray with one another. And it's entirely different than just having your private devotions in the same room as somebody else. And I just want to say our hearts, uh, the elders, uh, just been encouraged with our inauguration prayer breakfast on Friday. Uh, the people that came out, how we prayed together, how we were actually in a time of, of prayer warrior kind of spirit together. And so our church has had some opportunities to, to practice that. And we are, are glad that we can pray in community. We looked at how uh, God led the early church in that all of last week, kind of going through Acts and to see how they prayed together. Here's the temptation. 
When you read the book of Acts and, and you look back on church history, you can kind of put on rose-colored glasses, right? And think, wow, wasn't that exciting what God did in the early church? Wasn't the church simple in Acts 2.42? You know, wouldn't you just love a simple church today? I mean, you gather for prayer, hearing God's word, fellowship, bold witnessing, no committees, no annual reports, no meetings. I mean, wouldn't it just be great to be on mission like that? And we can kind of go, man, I, I wish I had that. Why does it always seem so complicated when we put this many people together uh, in one room and try to do church together? Why is there a program? Why is there an order of service? Why are all these moving parts? Well, beloved, it wasn't that easy for the apostles either. Uh, they had divisions and debates about how to uh, care for the widows of the Gentiles. Uh, divisions and debates over where to go and who to include on missionary journeys. It is tough uh, for us to have unity as a church. And so the question we're going to look at this morning is, what is going to bring unity in our community of prayer? What is going to unite us as we learn to pray together to our Father? We think about what brings unity to our nation. All these individuals across all these different states, what brings unity? May I suggest that one way we visibly see that? How do you unify a group of people? Well, at a sporting event that many of us probably will watch this afternoon, you will see the national anthem. You will see a flag come out. And all of a sudden, all the individual conversations, hustling to get a drink, hustling to find your seat. What happens as soon as the national anthem begins? Where does everybody look? To the, to the flag. Everybody stops. We remove our hats. We have a time of silence. We salute with our hearts. And it brings unity out of all of these individuals. Now, other religions, Muslims, how do they bring unity to their prayer time? They have a set five times a day that they are all to pray. There's a call to prayer. They all face the same direction towards Mecca, correct? But we know from John that our religion, our relationship with Christ is not bound to a certain place, facing a certain temple. What brings unity to us is not a temple or a place. What brings unity is that we all direct our prayers to a person. And that person is here in Matthew chapter 6. Look at the opening words. Pray then like this. What brings unity? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So when we pray together, what is going to orient all of our individual hearts to come together is by looking to God as our Father. And so the first step this morning in learning how to pray together is that we need to stop and remember the first step of prayer is recollection. I like what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He says this, There is a sense in which every man, when he begins to pray to God, should put his hand upon his mouth. What does he mean? He means just stop for a moment and remind yourself who you're talking to and what you are doing. 
That's the very first step in prayer is this address. Before we even get into specific requests, Jesus teaches us how to address the God that we worship. And he says here these four little words, Our Father in heaven, they will be revolutionary for your prayer life. They need to be mined out so they can be put to good use. And so the first thing we're going to see here is the context of calling God Father in the Old Testament. The context of calling God Father in the Old Testament. On this morning, I pray that your fingers are nimble. I pray that they are lotioned so that you can turn pages quickly uh, because we have a lot of scripture that we are going to cover. It is common for us today as Christians to begin our prayer with saying, Father, dear Heavenly Father. Um, But we need to step back and remember the time period in which Jesus spoke this. And we need to remember in light of the Old Testament context. Now, it isn't hard for us to remember that our Jewish friends, a lot of them took great pains in how they addressed God in their prayer. Some of them had such reverence for God, they wouldn't even use his personal name, Yahweh, correct? Something they wouldn't even uh, put on their lips. But did you know that out of the 39 books of the Old Testament, in 23,145 verses, God is not addressed as Father personally in prayer? in all of the Old Testament. Think about that. Did did you know that? God is not personally addressed as Father in prayer in 39 books in 23,000 verses. In fact, God is only referred to as Father in the Old Testament 14 times. And out of those 14 times, it's always He's the Father of the nation Israel, not of individuals. Now think about that. God calls Israel his son. Here's our first passage. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 47. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Okay, we all want to start flipping. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23. This is the first occurrence in the Hebrew Bible of the idea that God as a father Exodus 4 Begin verse 22. He tells Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So what God is saying to the most powerful ruler on the planet, Pharaoh, if you will not respect my son Israel... I will kill your son. Let's go over now to Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. You're going, Josh, Hosea, really? It's early, okay? Yes, I know it's early, and uh, it's right after Daniel, okay? So Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, keep going. Hosea chapter 11. And we see it repeated here in the major prophets. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Again, implying that God is a father. And so Israel knew that it was considered as a nation, the sons of God. But yet Israel never had the freedom to actually call God father. 
Now, now some of you are sitting here this morning and saying, Josh, why are you belaboring this point? What does this matter? You begin to see how big of a deal this is when Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 6 and you begin to realize that Jesus calls God his Father over 60 times in the Gospels. Over 60 times. So here we have the Old Testament. Nobody dared address God as Father individually. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he begins to talk to God as his Father. And he uses a very specific word, doesn't he? What word does he use to address God as Father? Abba. You know what the word Abba meant? It was the word that was used of little Israelite boys and girls when they would address their father and they would call him Daddy. Now, again, some of us have a really hard time with thinking about calling God Daddy, and many of the scholars that I've read this week uh, would say that it has more of a reverent touch than Daddy. Perhaps a better translation, some would say, would be Dearest Father. You still have that reverence. You still have that respect. And so Jesus calls God his Abba Father. Let's go over to Mark now, Mark chapter 14. And we'll see it clearly, but that is the word that's used here in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Lord's Prayer says, Our Father, or Abba. And in Mark 14, 36. Christ said, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus continually addresses God as dearest Father. And you know what that does to the Jewish leaders of the day? It arouses some hostility. Look now with me over at John. Keep going to the right. John chapter 5, verse 18. John chapter 5, verse 18. And we're going to see how the Old Testament saint, how the Old Testament scholar heard what we consider very familiar today. We think it's no big deal to address God as our Father, but in the Old Testament context, this was revolutionary. Uh, it was fighting words. Here in John chapter 5, verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his what? His own Father. And listen to their interpretation. Making himself equal with God. When Jesus was able to call God his Father, he was indicating a unique oneness, a, a, a unique intimacy. He was actually claiming to be one with God. We would understand that in our Jewish context because you would do the job that your father does. So if your father was a baker, you would be a baker. And so when Jesus, on the, on, uh, throughout his earthly ministry in John 5, he says, whatever I see the father doing, guess what? I do the same thing. Because why? He was in that context of, I learn from him, I am doing what he's doing. And so he's actually able to say that what he is doing is one with what the God of heaven is doing. It is remarkable in the Old Testament that Jesus would have the audacity to say God is his Father. But what is even more remarkable for us today is that Jesus makes a way for us to call God Father. The cost of calling God Father in the New Testament. 
It is only possible for true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who can say, Our Father. I know that is not a popular doctrine today. The modern-day man believes in the universal fatherhood of God. People ask all the time, aren't all peoples God's children? And in one sense, yes, God created everything. And so everything has its life and its breath from God. So in that sense, just like Henry Ford is the father of the the Model T, so is God the Father, the father of the whole world. But that doesn't mean that he has a personal relationship with him, does it? Any more than Henry Ford has a personal relationship with his Model T car. Have you ever heard, or maybe been a part of a conversation that goes something like this? A young person says to an older man, you were never a real father to me. And perhaps the man responds, but you're my own flesh and blood. The young man takes it a step further and says, it takes more than that to be a father. You were never there for me. What is he saying? He's saying, yeah, you you helped me come into the world, and that's since you're my biological father, but you didn't have a relationship with me. And so the Bible reserves the richness of calling God Father only for those that are actually children of God. Go over with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and we'll see the privilege of what it is to be able to call God Father. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1022, but it's 1 John. Here's some real help. It's before 2 John. You're welcome. Went to seminary for that. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Right? Not everybody, just because you are a creation on this earth, a human being, can call God Father. And in order to understand that, you need to understand the big picture of the Bible. The big picture of the Bible is that none of us started off as children of God. Not a single one of us. Whether you were born in a Christian home, whether you were born of believing parents, none of us started off as children of God. The Bible says in Luke 16, 8, that we were sons of this world. Ephesians 2, 2 says that we were sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 3 says that we were children of wrath. And Colossians 1.13 tells us that we need to be transferred out of that realm, out of the realm of darkness, out of the realm of disobedience, out of the realm of wrath, into the kingdom of His Son. I'll read it to you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is only through Christ that we can actually get adopted to be sons and to be able to call God our Father. And so the million-dollar question this morning is, how do we get adopted? How is it possible to call God our Father when our sins have separated us from Him? Let's now go over to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. That's page 974 in your pew Bible. Galatians chapter 4. And we're going to see how we get adopted to being able to call God Father. 
So after the Corinthians, we have Galatians 4, beginning in verse 4. We're going to read through verse 5. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent his son, Jesus, there, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And to understand how our adoption was accomplished, we have to kind of go back to the cross. It is on the cross that we see the only time in all the Gospels that Jesus does not address God as Father. It is the only time in all the Gospels that Jesus does not address God as Father. At Golgotha, we hear the most horrific prayer ever to be uttered. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was no answer. Edmund Clowney said, You haven't heard the cry of the Son until you heard the Father who didn't answer. And beloved, that is what our prayers justly deserve. Silence. But here's the good news. While Jesus was bearing our wrath on the cross. Jesus couldn't call God his father so that we could call God our father. Jesus was abandoned so that he could buy our adoption. Jesus was forgotten so that we could be remembered forever. That's the good news of the gospel. But beloved, that is the cost of what it that is the cost of what it is to pay the price to be able to even say this prayer. Our Father in heaven, Jesus made a way for us to be able to address God as Father. And hear this promise from John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Fast forward to the end when Christ is resurrected and he tells this to Mary in John 20, 17. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, listen to what he says to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That is what Jesus accomplished on the cross, is the right to be able to come into the presence of God and to live and to be able to address him as a father. And yet it is familiar on our lips. Perhaps we have lost the reverence in our church for being able to address God as father. He has become so familiar to us that we address him sometimes as the big guy upstairs, or we give him a sup offering. That's what I heard in college, sup God. That's a a sup offering. What? That's why it says here, I think there's this perfect tension. Our Father, that is childlike trust and intimacy. But don't forget the last three words. In heaven, or who art in heaven. We need both, don't we? We need God to become blessedly near and to be our Father and to have intimacy. But we also have to remember that we're just not running in like a seven-year-old saying, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. We are addressing the God who deserves reverence because he's the king of the whole world. He is our Father who is in heaven. Now, for those of you this morning that are struggling with saying, you know, I have had a horrible childhood. I don't have a good picture of a father. I want to let you know that there is not a single dad 
in this room who reads Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, which says, Be ye perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, and feels like he's been a perfect dad. And guess what? Even though you haven't had a perfect dad, all of our views of what a father is has to be corrected to our Father who art in heaven. Whether you've had a good dad or a bad dad, you at least in your mind know what a good dad is or you wouldn't even be able to complain that you had a bad dad, right? How could you say you had a bad dad if you don't even have in your vision what a good one is? And if you've had a good one, it still has to be corrected to our Father who art in heaven. And so you can learn with us as a church how to address God as your Father. And that is the privilege for those that know him as their children. Let's look at the privilege for us today. It is a privilege the Holy Spirit puts in our hearts. So let's go over to now Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I think you're still in Galatians, so just go backwards. Romans chapter 8. It's page 944 in your pew Bible. But the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and enables us to be able to cry out to God as our Father. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 16. It says here, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. Turn over now to verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but, but we ourselves, for we have the first fruits of the Spirit, groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself, He prompts us, He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. See, once we are born again, the Spirit immediately kind of prompts us to cry out, Abba, Father. It is like watching your children get born, and immediately the doctor, what, spanks their bottom, and they go, ah, all right? And, and, and all of that is done for them, and it is a sound of joy to a dad, right? Because your child is alive. And it is the same thing here in our spiritual birth that we get born again, and the Spirit taking some liberty here, smacks us, okay, and, and, and helps us to cry out, Abba, Father. Now, I know that many of you know Romans 8 backwards and forwards. Some of you have even memorized it. And it is a chapter of the victorious Christian life. But what word did we hear over and over and over again in these verses that shows a more realistic picture of what the Christian life is? The Spirit helps us with our groanings. We cry, Abba, Father. Did you get that in verse 15? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
just to dispel any belief that prayer guarantees a comfortable life? Is that what Romans 8 is telling us here? Does getting the Spirit guarantee a comfortable life, beloved? There's all kinds of theologies out there that we mix with the radio, we mix with uh, our TV, and we can also bring into this church. But it is not a prosperity gospel. Prayer is not a consumer product. Prayer is a refiner's fire. And when we go through those troubles, when we groan and when we cry, which is a realistic version of the Christian life, the Spirit makes us groan and cry towards the Father as opposed to away from the Father. We groan into Him. We cry out to Him. He intercedes for us according to His will because He works all things together for our good in His glory. Go back now to Galatians uh, chapter 4 and we'll read verse 6 and see how the Spirit prompts us to cry out, Abba, Father, as well. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons... I'm sorry, I'll give you an extra second. I apologize. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, by way of application, what does this mean for you this week? Here's a point that I just want to drive home. We need to pray out of our intimacy as sons and daughters of God. The Spirit meshes our spirit with His Spirit to cry out, Abba, Father. And Jesus oftentimes would withdraw from a crowd, and He would go and pray. Just because He was the Son of God does not mean that Jesus didn't need to pray. It was not out of duty that He needed to pray. He wanted to pray because why? He, he wanted to pray out of the intimacy of a son with a father. He wanted to spend time with God as His Father. So prayer does not lead you to a less busy life. Prayer leads you to a less busy heart as we go to the Father and we get that closeness. Who would be busier than Jesus? Can you imagine trying to find private, quiet time? It is like being a stay-at-home mom with nine children. <laughs> Can you find a quiet place? No. <laughs> Impossible. And Jesus withdrew to have intimacy. So imagine asking Jesus, if you were to see him on the street, and you were to say, Jesus, how are you doing? And, and he would say, my father and I are doing great. He has given me everything I need for today. And being Americans, we would say, you know, that, that's great about your father, but I'm asking, how are you doing? You as an individual. And Jesus would say, I can't even think about how to answer your question because my identity is so bound up with me being a son of God. J.I. Packer, in Knowing God, he wrote this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. 
So let's apply this to prayer. Here's a reflection question I want you to write down. Why does God hear your prayers? Why do you think God hears your prayers? That's the bottom line identity question. It shows whether you think you are a slave or a son. Why do you think you're being heard? Are you approaching God in a business relationship where if I do this, then God will do this? Or are you approaching God out of a family relationship? See, Josh, how do I know? Here's your second diagnostic question. Write this down. What happens when your prayers aren't answered? What happens when your prayers aren't answered? When your prayers aren't answered, you will know whether you are a slave or a son. If you are a slave and your prayers aren't answered and you're approaching God in a business relationship, you will either get cold or you will get anxious. You could be cold because you could say, you know what, I'm doing the best I can. I am doing my job as a Christian. God, I deserve this. You are not giving it to me. I am doing my part. You are not doing your part. I'm angry. I'm cold. Or a slave also gets anxious. You're praying, and your prayers aren't being answered, and you go, you know, I haven't been doing my job as a Christian. I I haven't been living the way I'm supposed to live. It's probably because I'm guilty that he's not answering my prayers. So think about it. Think about when your life isn't going right and you begin to pray. What is your response? If you get angry and you feel like God is not coming through, I deserve this because I've been a good person, because I've been reading my Bible, because I've been saying my private time, because I've been serving the church, I've been doing my job as a Christian. Or do you get guilty? saying, I guess, I have, I guess I've been letting you down, God. I, don't, I, don't, I guess you're not going to answer my prayers because I haven't been doing my job. In either case, you are proving that you are a slave in your thinking and not a son. You believe that your relationship with God is a business one based upon your performance. He has his duties, you have yours, and as long as you both meet them, then you should get what you ask for. But don't you see the difference between a business relationship and what true Christianity is? True Christianity is a relationship, not a business deal. Those that approach religion like a business deal say, God, come into my life, be my landlord, I'll do my part, you do yours. Right? Those of you that have rental properties, don't you know that the worst thing you could ever do is become friends with your tenants? Why? Because you become friends, you have them over, you get to know them, you let your guard down, and then they come to you with their sob story, and they say, I can't pay this month. And what, what happens to your heart? You want to, you want, you want to cave. Because it's gone from being a landlord to being a friend. And so they always say, which I've broken that rule, clearly, <laughs> okay? <laughs> uh, Stephen and Nice are our friends, okay? Uh, but they say that you're supposed to treat them as a business relationship so that you can keep and toe that line with them. 
And is that how we are with the Lord? Or are we truly in relationship with him? And a Christian prays like this. God, come into my life. Be, be my father. I am not worthy of your favor, but Jesus Christ has lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died, and as a result, and on that basis, he has done, be my father. Just, just be my father. Do according to your will. And it is out of that kind of intimacy that we get our, our second application. To pray out of identity. Our second one here is to pray out of intimacy. If any relationship is going to grow, it needs time and space, doesn't it? Where there's no agenda, where you can get to know each other. Men, we have to hear each other on this. You don't create intimacy, you make room for it, right? You can't tell your children, now we're going to have quality time. And your kids are like, yes, it's quality time with dad. No, how do you get quality time with your spouse? Quantity time. You make room for it. You can't say, now we're going to be intimate. And your wife's like, great, I'm glad we scheduled that. It feels organic. It feels real. Oh, thank you. Okay, that's not how it works. But out of time, out of no agenda, out, you know what, busyness, multitasking, efficiency kills intimacy. You don't have a relationship with God on the fly. It takes time. It takes going to him as your father. Now, the human heart, right now, some of you are hearing that and say, you know what, I just wish I was more self-disciplined in my prayer life. I just need to set a clock, and I'm going to be self-disciplined to go in there and talk to God. You know what you're trying to do to your heart? You're trying to whip it. But where do you actually find the desire to spend time with God? By reorienting your loves, by seeing him as a treasure, by seeing him as valuable. It's the same thing with our spouses in any other relationship. We have to see ourselves, as the Beatitudes say, poor in spirit. And when you're poor in spirit, you come needy, you come often. Tell me an eight-year-old that doesn't come to his dad asking for anything and everything at any given point in time. Because they have a childlike trust. Now, as we get older, we were talking about this in Wednesday Night Discipleship, as you get older, kids, probably eight and above, you can debate me on this later. They figure out when to go to dad. They figure out if they even should go to dad, right? Don't ask dad for this. Go to mom. You have a lot of siblings. You're like, no, you don't want to go to God. Go to God. You don't want to go to dad right now. You want to go to dad later. Now, why is the older sibling saying that? Because they've been working a long con all day, and they don't want dad to use all of his, uh, his willingness and his love on, on one that, that hasn't been working for it. So they're like, oh, no, you, you should wait. You should wait. <laughs> okay? Dad's tired right now. I'm the older brother, right? Seven years older. I, I know those tricks. Don't have self-pity that you have to come to God often because we should be like a child that's under eight. You come to God for everything, for anything, and all the time because learning about God, coming to church, learning theology is never supposed to replace your need for God. It is only supposed to highlight how much you didn't know that you need him. So come, 
Come and feel willing to address him as Father. The path to prayer is easier when you know that it is not a bribe, but a privilege for us to call God Father. Let's pray. God, we uh, are glad for what Jesus has done, the way that he has made for us to address you as Father. Lord, you are a person. And Lord, it took all three persons of the Trinity for us to pray. It took Jesus to make a way. It took the Spirit to help us cry out, Abba, Father. And you, as our Father, have to hear our prayers. What work, what a privilege it is to address you as Father. I pray that we would learn reverence this week of not just running in and saying, Daddy, but, but running in and being able to say, Dearest Father, who art in heaven. Lord, you are, you are the Father over all of creation. May we give you that respect. But may we have that childlike trust this week. May we have time with you out of intimacy. Forgive us for beginning our day, seeing you there in the living room, waiting to meet, for, meet with us, and we run right past you out the door. Lord, forgive us for thinking that we can multitask our relationship with you, that we can talk to you, you know, while we're driving and doing something else and, and being productive. Lord, give us the desire that your son had of withdrawing to meet with you, to build intimacy. May we pray, Lord, not out of a slave relationship, but out of a son relationship. We ask, Lord, all of this so that we can, Lord, look and be like your children on this earth and point people to the intimacy of what it is to know you. We ask all this, Lord, for your name. Amen.